0: Uh, In 1998, Elton John was knighted. Now, he's probably uh, close to the number one recording artist in the history of the world. But as he stood up after being knighted by the Queen and the announcement was made by the Lord Chancellor, he read straight off his alphabetical list, Arise, Sir John Elton. Now, he had no idea who Elton John was. Now, we may perhaps have a bit of a laugh about that. After all, everyone's heard who Elton John is. But the sad thing is, when you think about it, I wonder whether a lot of Christians would be in a similar boat. How well do you know our culture? What are people watching, spending their money on? What interests them or excites them? What books are people reading? What podcasts are they listening to? Are you woke enough to know what woke means? How many of the top 20 Instagram or Twitter accounts are you following? What do you know about Black Lives Matter or QAnon? Are you into cryptocurrency yet? Major changes in gender identity and sexual politics and the definition of marriage have completely changed the way our society thinks and talks about these topics. And most Christians don't know how lots of people are thinking about them. If you want to say something as a Christian to the non-Christian world, a good place to start is where they are instead of where we are. Because if you start where we are, then most Australians won't have a clue what we're talking about. As far as their mindset, their worldview, their language, so few Aussies today have anything to do with Christians, they're not even using the same words that we do half the time. Australia used to be a Christian country, at least in the sense that it was informed and influenced by Christianity. Then at some point, it moved to being post-Christian, where the majority of people reacted against our Christian background. But we're not even there anymore. It's been described that we're living in a post-post-Christian country, where people are just not even aware of Christian ideas and worldview and foundations. That's the world we're living in in Australia today. It's up to us to be building a bridge towards them. To say something to non-Christians, we need to start where they are, not where we are, with words and ideas that they can understand. Now that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does as he arrives in Athens Uh, Athens. It's uh, the capital city of Greece. Uh, You can see it there on the map. I think uh, we've got a circle. No, my thing's not working. It's not going to work, is it? Just give it a tap. Yeah, there we are. There's Athens. Next tap. He's just come from Berea. There we are. There's Berea up there. Uh, Athens is an amazing place. You may have been there yourself. It's one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world where you can still see evidence of incredible architecture and the artwork uh, a couple of thousand years later. Except that much of what we today call works of art, next slide, uh, back then were idols, uh, next slide, that were worshipped. Uh, Tourists today may take photos as they walk around, but the Apostle Paul did something different. Have a look there in verse 16. Paul has arrived in Athens first. Uh, He's waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas to arrive. They're back in Berea. And as he wanders around the city, one thing stands out to him. How many idols there are everywhere. And he's greatly distressed. There are gods for every area of life, for rain and sun, for luck and war for fertility and love, for protection and wealth. And Paul is distressed because of what the city's architecture says about the people of Athens, how blind they are, how futile their efforts are, a wasted life devoted to gods they make with their own hands. And because he's distressed, he has to do something, But notice what he doesn't do. He comes face to face with a city full of idol worshippers and his response, it's not to get angry. He doesn't march around with a placard and start a demonstration or an online petition. He doesn't abandon the city completely uh, to protect himself for fear of being contaminated. He, He doesn't do either of those two things. Moved by compassion, he speaks. He doesn't sit back and do nothing, and he doesn't move on. Verse 17, he speaks in the synagogue first. He reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who are there. It's not a bad starting place. After all, that's what he always does. In every city he visits, he goes to the Jews first. But that's not all. They're not really the ones who are serving these idols. So where else does he go? He goes to the marketplace, to the agora. In the middle of town, where the people are, where the noise and the action is. And perhaps he finds a soapbox and he stands up and he begins to speak. Or or maybe he just wanders around through the various alleys and he talks to the sellers and the buyers. But whatever he does, he does it. He engages with the culture day by day to whoever would listen. I wonder what the equivalent of the marketplace is for us. Where do people gather? Well, in a sense, our church, we we provide a couple of opportunities for people to gather. We have movie nights and we have music nights and various other things. But it's got to be more than one-off events twice a year. It's got to be more than what we do combined as a church. We need to be speaking where people gather naturally and spontaneously with the people around us as a lifestyle, not an event. As individuals, not simply what we do as a group. Now, the most obvious place, I reckon, is at work. That's where most of us spend most of our time, uh, where we know the most people, uh, at considerable, you know, some sort of depth anyway. There are lots of opportunities to talk around your work, not while you work, around your work. Perhaps if you're an Aussie bloke, Another place would be the golf course or the RSL club. Or Maybe if you're a woman, it's a, a, a mum's playgroup or a hairdresser or at the tennis. If you're a parent, perhaps it's as you wait to pick up the kids at school. If you're a single, maybe it's a community or a volunteer group you're part of. Maybe it's pushing the kids on the swings at the park or sitting in the doctor's waiting room or working out at the gym. Where are the people? If you want to be like Paul, that's what we we have to be. We have to be where people gather. And we need to fill those places with natural, consistent, God-soaked conversation. Talking, that's just a lifestyle thing, not something that we plan. And day after day, that's what Paul does. It doesn't take long before people start to notice. Verse 18... A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He starts getting heckled by some of the crowd. Some Epicureans on one side and the Stoics over on the other side. Now that's the other thing Athens is famous for, idols and philosophers. Great thinkers like Aristotle and Plato, or in this case Epicureans and Stoics. Now they make a strange combination, because they almost believe opposite things. You've got the Epicureans. Now their goal in life is pleasure. Minimize pain. Work out the way the world works. Live modestly to enjoy life. Sounds like most Aussies today, doesn't it? So you've got a label for them now. They're Epicureans, modern Epicureans. On the other hand, the Stoics, they elevated reason and ethical and moral duty above pleasure. A blessed life doesn't come by pursuing pleasure. A blessed life comes by logically thinking through problems and then behaving ethically, which is more important than pleasure. Now, they're almost opposite ways of thinking about it and, and I wonder if these two groups are mentioned uh, and, and it partly explains uh, verse 21. Uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Uh, they just spend their time debating and arguing with people who think differently to them. It's like one long episode of Seinfeld or Friends that people just sit around spending their day talking about nothing. And here they've found a new idea to talk about in Paul. And they both join forces in ridiculing him. What's this babbler saying? Uh, they call him literally a seed picker. That, that's the idiom and I think it means something like this. A hen is pecking around in the barnyard a seed here, a seed there, a bit of this and a bit of that. In other words, Paul is simplistic and he's not well thought out or developed. He's just grabbed whatever he likes the sound of and mixed it all together, which is slightly ironic seeing that's what they spend their whole day doing. But Paul seems to have a positive effect on at least some of them. Look there in verse 19. Uh, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. It's really the ultimate compliment. It's like being invited to address the National Press Club in Canberra or maybe the National Geographic Society. Present your work to us. Make it as clear and as well thought out as you can and we'll tell you what we think. This is Paul's big chance. so what will he do? Well, remember I said we need to be in touch with our culture and build bridges and find common ground with what they're thinking. Now, this is exactly what Paul does. Firstly, remember he's talking to a bunch of total outsiders. And so his message in verse 22 to 31, it's very different from what he's been saying to the Jews. To the Jews, there's a whole bunch of quotations from the Old Testament matching up the promises with the messiah. Now, do you remember we saw it last week in Thessalonica and Berea? But here it's different. He's got Old Testament ideas, but he's not quoting the Old Testament. Uh, the only things he directly quotes are a couple of lines from their version of Elton John from two of their favorite poets. And the only other thing he quotes is an inscription from an altar Now, think about that for a minute. The first thing he says when he sees this city full of idols, we know he's distressed by it. He's cut up emotionally. And yet, when he talks about what he's seen, you would never guess that he's upset. He's gone around and read the inscriptions, but in verses 22 and 23, he's doing it because he's looking for common ground, he's looking for a bridge to cross. And so he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. They sure are, there are gods everywhere. They take it as a compliment. Which I guess it is. The bridge is we're both interested in the spiritual dimension of life. I don't agree with where you finish up, we'll get to that, but the bridge is we're both interested in spiritual we're all interested in spiritual things. But being religious is a long way from being Christian, and so Paul continues. And he quotes from something he's seen that makes the perfect bridge. Uh, He spotted an altar with an inscription on it. These Athenians, they're so worried they may have missed making an idol to some god or another that they add an extra one to cover their bases to a god they don't know, just in case. It's a little bit like at the American War Memorial in Washington DC, they have the tomb of the unknown soldier. It is the remains of an unknown soldier killed in battle who represents all of the unknown soldiers who've been lost. Unfortunately though, in America, there was a stir a few years ago because it turned out that the US Army knew exactly who this unknown soldier was, but they hadn't bothered to tell the family that that's where he was buried. And so the unknown soldier was known after all. And that's what Paul is going to do here. He's saying the unknown God is known after all. Look in verse 23. As I walked around and observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. the God you don't know about, the God that you worship along with all your known gods, I'm going to tell you about him. And in verse 24 to 31, that's exactly what he does. And he's got one key idea. Don't worship idols that you've made. Worship the real God who made you. Who made who? They've built They've constructed and, and made beautiful temples, they've carved incredible idols, dozens of mythical gods they appease with their sacrifices. But the point is the whole system is man-made. Gods created in their own image to suit them. And Paul says the real God is not like that at all. The God they don't know is the exact reverse of that. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. You can't contain God. In fact, it's the opposite. God contains you. In verse 28, he quotes their own favourite poet, in him we live and move and have our being. It's not God is in your temple You are inside God. Everything we do depends on God allowing it. And then he quotes another poet. We are his offspring. God determines us. We are defined because of God. It's not the other way around. Because that's what it's like when you make yourself an idol. You invent a God for yourself. You figure out the God that you'd like and then you build it in your own image, a God who won't make too many demands on you. And you say, I've done a great job. Now this God will do what I want it to do. Now, people may not actually construct uh, an idol, uh, but they pretty much do exactly that when you talk to them. People say, well, I'd like to think that God is like this or like that. I'd like to think that God is loving and forgives me and uh, doesn't hold me accountable for what I do. That's what I'd like to think God is like. I'd like to think that God is like a wind or a force. I'm spiritual, but I'm not interested in a God who tells me what to do or how to live. Or even, I don't think God's there at all. I make my own decisions. I control my own destiny. But even that's still serving a God. It's just that it's a God who looks back at you from the mirror. (laughs) You're making a God in your own likeness, the way you would like. But the real God, the God the Athenians don't know, is the God who made them. To do what he wants. Worshipping that God is not about getting what you want. It's about doing what he wants. Keep reading from verse 25. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives men life and breath and everything else. God made us and gives us all that we have and are. He sustains us. He keeps everything going and he puts us where he wants us. He determines the times and the places where we'll live exactly the way he wants it. And I love verse 27. He did all of that so that we might know him. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. God is not just out there. He, he's not distant and aloof. Our God is personal. He made us for a relationship with him. He sets us in place for a relationship with him. This is a very different picture from the tinny the little gods of Athens. And in verse 29, he sums it up. He says, therefore, since we're God's offspring... He made us. He designed us in incredible detail. We shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design. He points out the inconsistency in their thinking. On the one hand, they agree with the poet who says that we are all the offspring of God. And yet they also think that they made the gods. You can't have God making you and then you making God. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And Paul calls that ignorance. It's, it's ignorance to think that handmade things are God's. And then he gets to verse 30. Here's the sting. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying idolatry is it's not a matter of personal preference, a personal choice. Idolatry is an insult to the one true God. And up till now, God's overlooked it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He finally gets to the same message he's been preaching in all the other places. Whether to Jews or Gentiles, he begins very differently, but he finishes in almost the same place. Turn back to the God who made you. Stop living in rebellion to him. It's the essence of the Christian message. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. You now know. And Paul's challenge is, my challenge to you, have you done that? Have you turned back to the God who made you? Or are you still serving the God of yourself? Are you the centre of your world or is God... Because verse 31, God has set a day when everything you've ever said or done will be judged with absolute justice and perfect holiness. And Paul says, we're going to be judged by Jesus himself. And God has given proof that he is the man for the job by raising him from the dead. And God's got the day picked out, the day when you'll face the prospect of being treated by him the way you treat him now. Whether you've spent your life worshipping the creation or the creator. And that's where Paul ends his speech. And the usual thing happens. Some laugh, especially, I think, they're laughing at the Paul's idea of an eternal bodily resurrection. For Greeks, the physical body is evil and corrupted. Why would you want to keep your body? It's the, you, Death, you get rid of the body and, and you become spirit. That's what they thought, a bodily resurrection. Who would want that? Some laughed, but others said, we want to hear you again. Come back tomorrow. And we notice some who do believe. Dionysius, verse 34, a member of the Areopagus, a woman called Damaris, a few others. It's not a huge result, but it's a start. Now, don't take the results to mean that the method is wrong. Because when you're presenting a message about judgment and forgiveness through Jesus people will reject you, no matter how well you present it. Especially when their worldview is so different from yours. But there will also be people who believe it. Now just finishing up. Athens is very much, I think, like Australia today. It's a melting pot of religions and ideas and it's a long way from a Christian worldview. There's perhaps not the same blatant idolatry that we saw in Athens but there's something pretty close. There are people setting their own course, planning their own futures, building their own world, a world where they are at the centre. It's just a form of idolatry like Athens. If you think Australia is a Christian society in a Christian country you'd think again. We're back where we started really, pretty close to Athens. We need to learn from Paul's example. People still need to be told to repent, uh, to turn back to the God who made them. People still need to be warned about judgment because it's real. But the way we do it, we we need to learn what it means to, to build common ground, to go to the marketplace, to talk to the people in a language they understand, using ideas they can relate to making contact with the sorts of things they watch and listen to and think so that we can bring them from there where they are back to the God who made them and who wants to know them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've been given such a big picture of you and yet it also is a very personal and intimate one So we long for the people we know, who don't yet know you, to come to know you. It's an encouragement to know that you want them to reach out and to find you as well. We pray that you will help us to do that. Give us the courage and the inspiration and the motivation and the opportunities to speak as Paul did. For the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.